Often people ask me uh, what kind of a church we are. You know, when you see a can on the shelf, you want to know what's inside. You want to, looking for pinto beans, you sure don't want to get some kale or something. But, uh, so, I'll, uh, so I usually tell them, I say, well, we're, uh, uh, we're a Baptist church. We're Baptist by doctrine, but we're not part of a Baptist denomination. And um, so I said, in that regard, we're non-denominational. We're not part of a denomination. I said, really, if I could just to clarify what we really are, we are a Bible-believing church. That's just about as simple as I could say. We're not specially trying to follow anybody's uh, particular brand, just a Bible-believing church. And I will say that, that that has what has made and kept the home church through these years, is its unwavering, steadfast faith in an inerrant, infallible Word of God. And may I say this morning, may it ever be so. Around Christmas and Easter, video, Netflix, whatever, TV, you can be sure there's going to be always some program come out searching for the historical Jesus. Meaning, we don't trust what the Bible says. We've got to go there and, you know, scientifically figure out who Jesus really is. And so they'll do this or they'll do that to try to find out who Jesus was. Some actually are halfway accurate and actually interesting. Most of them pretty much wacko, and some of them are outright sacrilegious. One came out this past week from Brazil. You can get it on your Netflix called The Last Temptation, and it portrays Jesus as a homosexual. Everybody's trying to figure out who Jesus is. Well, I'll tell you what, just get your Bible, and you'll find out who Jesus is. Because the Bible speaks about Jesus. And if you want to know what the Bible is about, just listen to what Jesus said. Because Jesus loved the Bible. The Bible loves Jesus, and Jesus loves the Bible. That's why we say around here, and it's even on the front of our little worship folders there, we are Bible-based, Bible-believing, and Christ-centered. And we do that on purpose because the Bible says, if you will lift up Jesus, I will draw all men. We're not Joseph Smith-centered. We're not Pope-centered. We're not Tim Pollock-centered. We are Jesus-centered church, Bible-believing and Christ-centered. One day, a teacher was teaching her young Sunday school class, a story about Jesus visiting Mary and Martha. This teacher carefully explained to the children how Mary and Martha hurried to clean the house and all the different aspects of that story. They cooked a special meal, and then the teacher, wanting to be, you know, uh, impactful in the hearts of these little children, paused and asked, now, if Jesus were to visit your house today, what would you do? One little girl quickly responded, I'd put a Bible on my table. (laughs) And that's right. Putting a Bible on your table would make Jesus happy. Of course, putting a Bible in our heart would even make him more happy. But the fact that Jesus and the Bible are so closely associated is the the great uh, theme of Scripture. There's a great, great battle today over the Word of God. And as such, it's an attack on Jesus himself. 
Today, the attack on the Bible from the infidels and the whack jobs that uh, are out there don't really bother us. That's not a big issue. The crazy thing, though, is uh, the, the attack that's coming from the inside, the termites that are in the church that are eating away at the very foundation of our faith. People like the man who's running for, and I use the term man loosely, who is running for a Democratic nomination for president, Pete Buttigieg, who has a husband. You heard that right. He has a husband. He has come across as a very clean cut, uh, uh, down to earth, you know, and very clearly goes to church all the time. But here's what he said about evangelical religion, Bible-believing religion. He said, it is a religion of religious bigots. So a person who believes the Bible is a bigot? No, it's just they believe truth. And if the truth hurts, Mayor Pete, you need to change your life. Today, the Bible is being attacked as never before. Denominations are leaving its moorings and saying, we're going to go by what is popular and not what the Bible says. I mean, denomination after denomination, they don't get more fundamental, trust me. It just doesn't happen. It is estimated now when Gallup polls that 75% of Christian colleges, listen to this, 75% of Christian colleges, these are the ones who are training ministers, 75% now do not take the Bible as the literal Word of God. 75% of Christian colleges. Folks, there is an attack on the Word of God. And that's why, clearly, over these last few weeks, I believe we have really uh, hit the nail on the head by saying we believe in the authority of Scripture. And so this is our fourth and final message. Next week, we'll have a wonderful Christmas message. And then the last message of the year, I'm going to preach on the most searched Bible verse of 2019 on the Internet. And so uh, I believe it'll be a great way to finish off the year, and then we'll start the new year in the book of Revelation. So we've got some great days ahead. Let's bow for prayer. Father, thank you for the great spirit of this church. Thank you. Lord, I feel like I'm on fire. Lord, I feel like if I touch paper, I'm gonna, it's going to explode. Thank you, Lord, for your spiritual gifts. Thank you for these precious saints, Lord, when so many people who are spirit-filled get together, Lord, it just... There's just this, uh, this just great uh, revival feeling, and thank you for this church. I pray, God, that you will bless us today and help us to uh, solidly stand on the Word of God, regardless of what anybody says. Help us to be a Bible-believing, Christ-centered church. Amen. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's go to the book of Matthew, chapter 5, please. The greatest sermon ever is called the Sermon on the Mountain. Jesus was on the mountains, or at least some foothills, and uh, it's a beautiful Galilean day, and there the azure sky and the delicate clouds are going by. There's a soft, warm breeze. They're sitting on the grass or on rocks or on their backpacks, whatever they can sit on, and this man, this iconoclast, this unique preacher, this man who spoke with authority, is standing there addressing the people, this rabbi from 
Bethlehem, Nazareth. He's a Nazarene. He talks with a funny accent and wow. But he was holding their attention. He gives them the most amazing uh, standards of day-to-day life called the Beatitudes. Someone say, why are they the Beatitudes? Because that's attitudes that ought to be. And so there are eight of them, and he talks about things that they should live. And then he segues right after these Beatitudes. He stops, basically drops the mic and says, now, before we go any further, do you believe in the authority of Scripture? Because frankly, if we don't, you don't believe in the authority of Scripture, whatever else I say is going to be a moot point. You're not going to, because I'm a Bible preacher. That's basically what Jesus said here in these two verses. So let's read them together out loud. Ready? Begin. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. Why are we a Bible believing church. Well, because Jesus is a Bible-believing Savior. But number one, because Scripture is preeminent. Today we ask the question, is there an absolute standard of righteousness? Get in your little Volkswagen and go on down the road here and go to University of Pacific and go to the religion department and there, sitting in one of your theologian classes, uh, ask the question, is there an absolute standard for living? Is there something that there's no question about what is right and wrong? And they'll say, well, you know, culture dictates this, and, you know, in many societies, and, you know, if you went to the Eastern, you'd have, you know, you'd have to, Buddha has his standards, and if you go to Saudi Arabia, I mean, Spin, spin, that's where it goes. But folks, there is an absolute standard, and that is the Word of God. And it didn't come from Rome, it doesn't come from Mecca, it doesn't come from Salt Lake City, it doesn't come from Washington, D.C. The absolute standard for living comes from way higher than that. Look at verse 17. Think not that I have come to destroy the law or the prophets. Think not. Faulty thinking, stinking thinking. They were thinking, you don't sound like the rabbis that I know. You don't sound like Rabbi Ben-Hurin. You don't sound like the other rabbis. You sound so unique. I'm thinking you don't like the Bible. He said, do not ever think that I don't love God's Word. First of all, he said, I did not come to denigrate the Old Testament. I'm not here to throw it down in the mud, and I'm not here to just cast it aside as though it's nothing. The fact of the matter is, true Bible righteousness goes far beyond the phony externalism of the Pharisees. Bible righteousness is an inward holiness, rotten you by the power of the Holy Spirit that has given life to the authority of Scripture. The Word of God has always been the standard for living. It will always be the standard for living. And it is the only ultimate standard that we can stand on. People say that times have changed. And so that the Bible doesn't fit today anymore. No, it's more accurate to say that today doesn't fit the Bible anymore. 
It's today that's wrong, not the Bible. The fact is, there is an absolute standard. And today, people are trying to reinterpret the Bible. Just like the Constitution of the United States of America, people are constantly trying to reinterpret the core document, calling, for example, freedoms for immoral behavior or freedoms for anti-biblical behavior, saying the Constitution guarantees our freedoms, reinterpreting what the Constitution never said at all. In California now, AB 1785 now requires pro-homosexual education at all public schools. It requires it. So when you're, if you take your child to a public school, first grade, second grade, even kindergarten now, they will, it is required by state law that they will learn about the value of homosexuality. AB 1931 also provides that our tax dollars will go to make sure that these children take field trips to promote diversity and tolerance of homosexuality. People are redefining what biblical morality is all about. Linda Miller in the Wall Street Journal recently wrote that dissatisfaction with conventional images of authoritarian or paternalistic deity, people are embracing quirky, individualistic conceptions of God to suit their own spiritual needs. And that is the postmodern mindset. That's especially the millennial mindset, but it's really the boomer mindset as well, that, that uh, we can have our own God, that we can make it like we want to. Many people say that there are so many errors in Scripture, it's so antiquated, it's so archaic that we don't really need to live by it. Today, sexual deviation is now orientation. And I will say that uh, that is the worst thing that we can do for people is to not give them an absolute standard. The church of Jesus Christ needs to lovingly stand on the truth. It gives somebody to get on either side of. And when they want to get right with God, they can come back to something that will help them. I recently read the, this week actually read the uh, brief testimony of a, quote, transgender person, a man who had gotten saved. By the way, the word transgender is a Stupid word, because there's no such thing as transgendering. If you are a man, you'll always be a man. Uh, you'll never be a, a woman. If you're a woman, you'll never be a man. You can call yourself that, but uh, no such thing as transgender. It's, it's, it just doesn't, it's not accurate. But he became a Christian, and I want you to listen to this part of his testimony. He said, the church today, in my opinion, is loving people right into hell. They are afraid to call sin, sin. Here is a former transsexual who got saved, but he almost didn't get saved because the churches wouldn't stand against it. Jesus verified two important facts about Scripture. First of all, he did not denigrate the Old Testament. And number two, he did not deny the Old Testament. Think not. He said, you're thinking wrong if you think that this is a new day and we don't need the Bible anymore or we don't need the Old Testament anymore in particular. People misinterpret verses like Jeremiah 31, 31, behold the days come, saith the Lord, this great prophet thundering, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. People often say, well, that's the Old Testament. This is the New Testament. It's a new covenant. That's just, that's nutty. That is not ex all what God is saying. 
The New Testament isn't different and better and more improved than the Old Testament. People say it's a new covenant. As if the old covenant was inefficient or somehow it wasn't good enough. Folks, God has not set aside any principle from the Old Testament. Now, some precepts, yes, and in my book on tithing, I talk about that, that precepts may have changed, but principles don't change. And that's the way we understand Scripture. They're all still the same. Look what he says in verse 17. I am not come to destroy the law. The word destroy is the word pulling down a wall or smashing a house to the ground. He said, I didn't come to smash the Old Testament. I didn't come to pull down the precepts and the principles of the Old Testament. It is preeminent. It's always been preeminent. It is the Magna Carta of life. Nothing can take its place. Listen to what Exodus chapter 20 and verse 1, here's God speaking about the commandments. God spake all these words. Verse 1, God spake all these words. If God spoke it, it must be true. In fact, he clarifies that I am the Lord thy God, which has brought thee out of the land of Egypt. And then he gives the Ten Commandments. Now, if God spoke it, it can't be anything but perfect. Jesus said, I'm not come to destroy the law. It's perfect. How can you destroy something that's perfect? He said, neither have I come to destroy the prophets. Malachi, Isaiah, Jeremiah, they all validate the law. For example, Malachi, what did he do? He uh, validated uh, divorce and remarriage. He validated tithing. He validated justice. He validated parental concern for families. No, the fact is the Old Testament and the New Testament work together. The law and the prophets work together. It's all the same. Verse 17, I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Now we get to the heart of the matter. I come to fulfill. Now, some people interpret that as meaning the Old Testament was incomplete, and so Jesus completed it. I've even heard people teaching on uh, the book of Matthew and the Gospels where Jesus would say, you know, you've heard it say in the Old Testament, thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say unto you, and they'll say the Old Testament was incomplete. Jesus fulfills and completes, and he says, this is even more than the Old Testament. I'm telling you, you can't even think about a man or woman sexually in your mind without committing adultery. And so Jesus completes the law. Folks, I mean, they're probably well-meaning, but I'm telling you what, they're crazy. That's nutty. You don't think that, Jesus, that God was concerned about people's mental morality in the Old Testament? Really? So he didn't care at all. As long as you didn't physically commit adultery, mental adultery was okay in the Old Testament? Really? That's what you think? That's not what Jesus taught. It's always been wrong to commit adultery, whether it be with your body or your mind. It, it, Jesus didn't come up with this. He clarified it. He validated it. He put the uh, cookies on the lower shelf, basically. He said, look, just in case you're wondering, this is a good word here. You remember in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 15, John the Baptist uh, wanted to baptize Jesus or wanted to be baptized by Jesus. And Jesus said, no, I'm going to be baptized by you. 
John, John the Baptist said, man, you're not going to be, I can't baptize you. That, you're holy. You're perfect. You're the Messiah. You're God in the flesh. How could I baptize you? But remember what Jesus said? He said, you need to baptize me because it fulfills the righteous law. It's a righteous law. And I want to fulfill it. Jesus fulfilled the law, he says here. He, when it says he perfected the law, it doesn't mean he completed it. It was already complete. He just validated it. He just said, good job, God the Father. People ask, have you read the four Gospels, Pastor? Oh, yes. Actually, I've read all 66 Gospels because all 66 books of the Bible talk about Jesus Christ. Amen. You'd say, well, I read Genesis and I didn't see Jesus, but then you need to read it again. Because you'll find Jesus in every chapter. Jesus is, uh, in, in fact, if you want to just put some fire in your personal devotions in 2020, just start looking for Jesus by type and anti-type, by his, uh, by his word in every chapter in the Bible. You'll find it. Nothing deficient about the Bible. There were three chefs that were working in a restaurant, a beautiful delicious upscale restaurant. The kitchen supervisor approached with an order and gave them instructions how to properly prepare it. The first chef looked at the instructions and said, you can show a recipe to a hundred different chefs and each one will get a different meeting from this recipe. You can't even understand really these recipes and so why even read these recipes? The supervisor looked at him like, well, what's your problem? The second chef looked at the recipe and said, I don't believe these recipes are the literal directions of our supervisor. I believe every one of these ingredients have secret meanings. I think the meat requires something, and the spices and the other ingredients symbolize something else. And I think when we're talking about temperature, we're talking about how important things are. The supervisor looked at him like, what, are you crazy? While the other two were in engaging in their debate, the third chef simply took the recipe, prepared the dish according to instructions, and guess what? The dish turned out to be delicious. Why do we need to reinterpret the Bible? Why do we need to say it's this or that? Folks, just obey the Bible. It's so powerful for your life and for your family. We are a Bible-believing church, and Scripture is to be preeminent. Why are we a Bible-believing church? Because Scripture is permanent. Verse 18 now. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass away, excuse me, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. You can take your Bible and get your Strong's Concordance, or if you have one of those apps, or go to blueletterbible.org, blue letter, uh, a real convenient one, cheap one, inexpensive one. But uh, you'll find that the word verily is the word amen in Scripture. So actually it would read this way, amen unto you. Now when the Bible says amen, it's meaning absolutely true. And I'm glad that it means absolutely true. In a day of relativity, there is some absolute truth. So Jesus, remember now, he's Sermon on the Mount, he's just given the Beatitudes, the people are there, they're listening to him. He's given this wonderful dissertation on how to connect with people, how to act with people, how to have a personal walk that's just amazing. And then he stops and says, before we go any further, 
Do you believe in the authority of Scripture? Remember, the only Scripture they had was the Old Testament at that point. Do you believe in the authority of Scripture? He said, you need to believe, first of all, it's preeminent in everything. And number two, you need to know that it's never going to change. It's permanent. It's, and let me say amen to that, Jesus is saying. Amen to you. Till heaven and earth pass. And by the way, heaven and earth is going to pass. We're going to be talking about that in the next few weeks here, about heaven and earth passing. The Bible said it's going to pass, this old earth. I've mentioned before, you know, Bruce says, oh, global warming, climate change, you've not seen anything yet. <laughs> so read the book of Revelation, read the book of Daniel. I'm telling you what, there is going to, read First Peter, there is a fervent heat <laughs> that's going to burn everything up. This earth is going to pass. It's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And yet, we'll still be reading the Word of God. Amen. We'll still, the same word that we have now, we'll still be just looking at it saying, that's amazing. That's incredible. The Bible says it will always be here. You'd say, well, all of it? Yes, all of it. Every jot. The scripture was written in Hebrew or given in Hebrew to write down by Hebrew writers. A whole interesting and beautiful uh, line of study there for you. Why did God choose Hebrew and why did God choose Greek? But it's just powerful. The Old Testament written in Hebrew for the most part and some Aramaic and a few other little parts, but 99% Hebrew. Here God says that every part of Scripture, in fact, every jot, jot is a Hebrew letter. It looks like an apostrophe. It's an actual full letter like we have A, B, C. It's just an actual letter. It's pronounced as a Y sound. He said every letter written down is going to be preserved. And then he says every tittle. A tittle is just like a, we would call it a serif. Probably the greatest illustration would be take a capital E printed and take a capital F printed. What's the difference? Just that one little bottom half of a line, right? That's a, that's a tittle, <laughs> Every, not just every letter, every stroke, the Old Testament scribes would have somebody else come behind them and take the manuscript, and they would count the strokes, the strokes of the pen. It was unbelievably amazing how they would take Scripture, and that's why we know that all Scripture is preserved. Now, in this four weeks, I've given us a couple of words to remember. First of all, we believe Scripture is inspired. The three ends, okay? Inspired means it is breathed by God into these wonderful human authors. They didn't, they didn't write it, and then it became inspired. It's not inspired because it does something for me. It is inspired. It is inerrant, meaning there is not one error as given in the original manuscripts. There's not any errors. It's all accurate. Everything that God said has been written down. Inspired, inerrant, infallible, meaning there's no mistake in anything. There's no mistake in doctrine. There's no mistake in science. There's no mistake in history. There are no mistakes in Scripture. Inspired, inerrant, infallible. Let me leave you with one more word 
for your vocabulary so that you can keep it in mind, and that is perfectly preserved. It is preserved. I wish I could put an N in there. It would be great to have it, but uh, it's preserved. And we use that verse, Psalm 12 and verse 6. The words of the Lord are pure words. There you go, pure words. Do you have a pure Bible? Hallelujah, we've got a pure Bible. No man's words are in it. The words of the Lord are pure words. As a silver tried in a furnace, not just once, seven times. Thou shalt keep them. Verse 7, this is an important verse. Thou shalt keep them. O Lord, thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. Forever. We have in our hands, we have a complete preserved text. There's not, you won't ever find a, a hidden gospel somewhere. You won't find a hidden word. You won't even find a hidden letter. You won't even find a hidden little stroke of the pen. You'd say, well, mankind wrote it. No, mankind copied it. The original authors wrote it down from what the Holy Spirit told them. You'd say, well, those copyists make mistakes. And how, could, how do we know that we have the perfect preserved Word of God? Because we have a promise. It's preserved. Here, let me show you, if you would, if you'd cue that up. We have a little short minute, uh, minute and a half video and it describes the, uh, the uh, care that the copyists, the scribes took in copying Scripture. Let's have a moment of honesty here. Everything we believe hangs on this book being true. A book that's been copied by hand in a game of telephone lasting centuries. Yeah, let's deal with that doubt for a minute. To trust this book, you have to trust the people that made it. So, let's look at the work of a scribe responsible for the Torah. Before he can ever touch ink to paper, there are 4,000 rules he has to memorize. He's a professional responsible for every stage of production, preparing the calfskin, creating a grid with pinholes and string, so each letter is in the same place. Each word reads with the same ease and accuracy as the original. Even the tedious task of preparing a day's worth of ink from gall nuts. He copies one word at a time, first saying, then writing, then saying it again. Make a mistake on God's name, he starts the whole document over. Every single letter, 304,805 of them, is written according to a prescribed set of strokes. He writes with a feather quill, by candlelight, with ink that bleeds and runs, and the letters must not touch. We're talking about a lifetime of backbreaking dedication, and that means this book is not just any book. It means that the words it contains, God meeting his people face to face, God leading, protecting, providing for them. Those words can't be a mistake. So we're forced to deal not just with words, but with the living God himself. When a scribe would be copying the law, if a king was to walk into the room, he would not look up, he would not speak, he would not in any way change his behavior. He would continue to write. Before a scribe would write the name of God, he would stop, he would go, and he would wash his hands ceremonially, and then he would write out the name of God. It's amazing the uh, tremendous care with which these copyists, and that's why we know at least for the first whatever thousands of years, we have a copy of the Word of God. 
And then, thank God, in the 1400s, Gutenberg came along with a press. And now it's forever codified. We don't have people that copy the law anymore. It's all now in immovable print. And, of course, now with the Internet, I mean, it is an incredible thing, God's Word. Matthew 24 and verse 35, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words will never pass away. Scripture never changes. Have you ever noticed how this world and the theories of science continually change? For example, I read just this week about the, uh, the newest idea that science has about the origins of earth. A team led by the University of Colorado that just came out, August 12th actually was the time that they came out with it, but a team led by the University of Colorado Boulder Geology has a new timeline for the earth for reasons still unclear, drawing in records from asteroids, how they were able to get on an asteroid and check that out, I don't know, but uh, you read stuff like that, you go, what? Drawing on? Well, whatever. Now the earth is 4.5 billion years old, much earlier than some had previously proposed. Okay, now, this is 2019. Go back to 2018, and they will tell you the earth was 3 billion years old. Okay, and then go back to 2017. You know they had a different date? The point is they change every single year. Science changes every senior year. And yet the fact is, folks, that God's Word never changes. It says it right here. It never changes. Heaven and earth come and go, but not God's Word. You say, Pastor, does it trouble you that the Bible doesn't always agree with modern science? No. Actually, I'm glad that it doesn't because if it agreed with always with what science is doing, then tomorrow it might be wrong because science just constantly changes. Medicine constantly is changing. What you did now you didn't do a few years ago, and honestly, people have the idea that, okay, now we're finally have arrived, folks. I mean, in a year from now, it'll be totally different because science continues to change. You give these scientists enough time, and sooner or later, they will catch up with the Word of God. You say, well, aren't we ignorant for believing the Bible? No, you are the smartest person in the room. You got the sharpest, pen sharpest point on your pencil, I guarantee you. Just keep believing the Word of God. Generations follow generations, yet it lives. Nations rise and fall, yet it lives. Kings, dictators, presidents come and go, yet it lives. Torn, condemned, burned, yet it lives. Hated, despised, cursed, yet it lives. Doubted, suspected, criticized, yet it lives. Damned by atheists, yet it lives. Scoffed at by scorners, yet it lives. Exaggerated by fanatics, yet it lives. Misconstrued and misstated, yet it lives. Ranted and raved about, yet it lives. Its inspiration denied, yet it lives. Yet it lives, a lamp unto our feet. Yet it lives, a light to our paths. Yet it lives, the gate to heaven. Yet it lives, a standard for childhood. Yet it lives a guide for youth. Yet it lives an inspiration for the mature. Yet it lives a comfort for the aged. Yet it lives a food for the hungry. Yet it lives as water for the thirsty. Yet it lives as rest for the weary. Yet it lives as light for the heathen. Yet it lives as salvation for the sinner. Yet it lives as grace for the Christian. To know it 
is to love it. To love it is to accept it. To accept it is life eternal. Thank God for the authority of Scripture. We love His Word. Amen? Let's give Him praise. I love His Word. I love His Word. I stand on His Word. Glory to God, I stand on His Word. I'm a Bible-believing, unashamed Christian, Christ-centered. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer.